0: Hello and welcome to SAE Tomorrow Today. I'm your host, Grayson Brolty. On today's episode, we're absolutely honored to have Dr. Anita Sengupta, CEO and founder of Hydroplane. On today's episode, we discuss the future of sustainable aviation and the role hydrogen power plant technology will play in a zero emission aviation future. We hope you enjoy this episode. Anita, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: I'm excited to have you here because zero emission aviation is the future. But more importantly, zero emission aviation is absolutely critical for the future as we move into society. So thank you for taking the time to discuss this today with us. As we kick this off, I want to dive into Hydroplane because Hydroplane is developing hydrogen power plant technology for the aviation industry. The term power plant could refer to on plane and off plane to level set with our audience. Will you please kindly describe how the hydrogen power plant technology will work and what hydro plant is developing?
1: Sure. So our goal is to basically be a drop-in replacement for existing internal combustion engines inside smaller aircraft. So currently, those are piston-driven hydrocarbon-fueled systems. So our system would basically remove the engine, which is there, uh, remove the existing feed system, which is there, which is typically 100 LL for small aircraft, and replace it with a hydrogen fuel cell-based power plant coupled to an electric motor coupled to a hydrogen feed system.
0: Would that be like a smaller... Would that be like a Uh, a personally-owned Cessna, for an example, or um, like uh, an aircraft of that size?
1: So we're starting at a 200 kilowatt stack, which is basically 270 horsepower in English units. And so this size power plant can support a range of single-engine aircraft from Cessna 172, um, almost a Cessna 182, also support Cirrus SR-20, and then Piper Archer and Piper Arrow. We're actually starting off with a Piper Archer for our first flight demonstration.
0: Are there limitations to the size of the aircraft that your technology could be retrofitted with?
1: Interestingly enough, the smaller the aircraft is, the harder it is to configure because you have less real estate to play with to um, install the system. And you also have a more complex way to achieve your weight and balance on the aircraft platform. So as you go to larger aircraft, from a real estate perspective, it actually becomes a little bit easier, also from a hydrogen storage perspective. But then when you get to certain size platforms, then you get to issues of, well, does the existing balance of plant technology exist, such as the size of electric motor that you would need to couple to a larger stack. But inherently, our system is modular which means that we can grow it to larger total power requirements So we're looking actually to get all the way up to one megawatt of power
0: well how far would one megawatt of power take the aircraft
1: so when you look at um, the aviation use case, there is power, which defines basically what you need to be able to achieve the thrust, which is required to take off and obviously maintain crews. Um, and then there's endurance, which is related to how much fuel that you have stored. So power is related to payload capacity and how much fuel you have on board is related to the range or the endurance of the aircraft. But for this first implementation, we're looking at providing a three and a half hour range, which is roughly a thousand kilometers in a single engine aircraft.
0: Three and a half hour it reminds me, uh, if you look at the the Hawaiian Islands, seems like a great example because you have excess capacity to this weather. And you have Mokalei Airlines recently announced that they're going to focus on zero aviation or in the northeast now in the summer with N- Nantucket booming with the, um, the grandmother sweater trend. That seems like that is regional aircraft are really great application for the technology that you're developing?
1: So our goal is to achieve uh, decarbonization for regional travel, um, so where you're not going incredibly long distances, you know, 1000 kilometers, 1500 kilometers, sort of at the the peak, um, which would be, you know, city to city travel. So yes, the regional marketplace is one that we're very much interested in. And if you take a look at CO2 output per passenger kilometer traveled, it's actually a lot higher for regional markets. So You can make more of a dent in the CO2 output for aviation as a sector if you attack the regional market and decarbonize it first.
0: If you look at the regional market, weight is a very big issue that you're limited on how much luggage you can bring, the size of your luggage. When you Put your your hydrogen fuel cell in there and you replace the internal combustion engine can you technically add on more weight from a passenger and a luggage perspective because your system will be lighter
1: so it is a bit of a double-edged sword so when you're starting with really tiny platforms then you're looking at a equivalent useful load but as the platforms get larger as you have more real estate on the aircraft then you would be able to definitely meet the useful load and potentially increase the useful load which ultimately means uh, more luggage
0: It reminds me of this great quote that you say, I like to solve difficult problems because you're looking at the difficult problem. Do we balance the weight of the passenger and the cargo? Do we we focus on the engine? In your opinion, how can we decarbonize aviation because it's such an important problem that has to be tackled.
1: So decarbonizing aviation really means electrifying um, the aircraft, so having electric propulsion. Very similar to ground-based vehicles where you have battery electric vehicles and you have hydrogen fuel cell electric vehicles, you can also have electric propulsion in the aircraft. And then you couple that stored electrical energy to an electric motor to turn a prop, and then you have a emission-free platform. And in the case of hydrogen fuel cell technology, the output from the fuel cell stack is liquid water.
0: Is that one of the reasons that led you to founding Hydroplane?
1: Absolutely. So I am um, a very avid pilot myself. I I fly small aircraft. I'm a commercial pilot, actually. And so I do have a carbon footprint associated with my hobby. And I have spent the last five years since leaving NASA focused on green transportation technology. And I felt as though the startup space was the best way to disrupt the aviation sector to decarbonize it. And that's where I wanted to come in as an entrepreneur and bring my expertise to bear.
0: You brought up NASA. I'm just going to go on the record. You did really cool things at NASA. You were based at JPL, which is commonly known as the NASA Jet Propulsion Lab in Pasadena. I was honored to go on a tour there after the Mars Rover landed and went through the whole exhibit of everything. You did some really incredible work at NASA. Can you explain to our audience the the work that you did and the impact that it's had on science?
1: Oh sure, I, I worked for the space program for almost 20 years. I was at uh, 16 years at NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory. So my first project was developing ion propulsion, which is actually electric propulsion for spacecraft applications, very efficient, um, and uh, basically allows you to be more efficient, which means that you can carry more payload, which is similar to what we were talking about with electric propulsion for aircraft. After that, I worked on the development of Mars entry descent Landing Systems, specifically the supersonic parachute and part of the sky crane for the Mars Curiosity Rover. And then I worked on the development development of Earth reentry systems, Venus landing systems, and then finally developed a payload for the International Space Station called the Cold Atom Laboratory.
0: You've done a lot. NASA's done a lot. I want to point out to our audience, NASA began conducting missions with hydrogen in 1958. That's a long time ago. Was it during your time at NASA that you first became exposed to the positive benefits of hydrogen?
1: Well, yes. And even before NASA, my first job out of school was working for Boeing on the development of the Delta IV launch vehicle. And I was on the cryogenic common booster core team working on the development of cryogenic feed system for launch vehicles. So hydrogen, liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen has always been the propellants of choice for launch vehicles because it's so efficient and so mass efficient. Uh, so that, I would say, was my first exposure it was actually on the cryogenic feed system development for rockets.
0: When I first started studying or or learning about hydrogen, I didn't realize that there's so many different types of hydrogen. You have blue hydrogen, green hydrogen, and and you have uh, high purity hydrogen. When you're developing your power plant, can it run on all sorts of hydrogen or are they limited to certain uh, specifics of hydrogen?
1: So there's two aspects to the nature of the hydrogen. One is how is the hydrogen produced? Is it produced using a hydro carbon reforming process, which means that then there's a CO2 output associated with that production. That's called gray hydrogen. Or it can be produced by electrolysis by splitting up a water molecule using green energy. And that's typically referred to as green hydrogen. And therefore, it doesn't have carbon output in the production of it. So we definitely want to power our aircraft and our fuel cell propulsion system um, off of green hydrogen. When it comes to the purity of hydrogen, it does have to be pure hydrogen, just like the hydrogen that goes into hydrogen fuel cell electric vehicles for ground-based uses. And that's to protect uh, the durability of the cell cell inside specifically the polymer membrane which enables the hydrogen ion transport within the fuel cell stack
0: well the high purity hydrogen allow the power plant to operate longer for longer periods of time
1: yes it is necessary to ensure the lifetime of the power plant that it's high purity and it's the same purity that you would have for a fuel cell electric vehicle on the ground meaning it's readily available does it have to be stored
0: differently if you if you on the on the on the tarmac is there a certain way that has to be stored or is it just the way that the hydrogen's created
1: Definitely, um, when you're looking at an aviation application, you've got a gross takeoff weight limitation. You don't really have that in an automotive application because you don't have to lift off the ground. And So for that reason, it is definitely preferred and I would argue required to store it as a liquid on board an aircraft so that you can reduce the uh, weight of the tanks, ultimately. Because without a liquid, it's actually stored at not as high a pressure as it has to be stored in a high-pressure gas state, as in the automotive application, for example. So for the automotive application, the hydrogen is stored as a high-pressure gas at 10,000 psi or 700 bar. If you store it as a liquid in an aircraft, you only have to store it at a couple of atmospheres. So that makes it a lot easier. Kind of like the tire pressure in the inside of your bicycle tube.
0: Well, that's a valid point. Like a hypothetical, let's say there's a regional airline that's going to start operating with your power plant, say, in the Northeast now, because we're in the summer. What are they going to do or how are they going to get the, the high purity hydrogen infrastructure so when the aircraft lands, it can refuel?
1: So for sure, whenever you're developing a new technology, the infrastructure piece has to be done in concert with it. Um, and if you take a look at the example of you know charging battery electric vehicles on the ground, you know the first people who to have it had difficulty finding charging stations, but eventually the demand produces uh, more interest in local governments to create those charging stations. So we're going to have that same situation where we start infrastructure in a few key locations and then expand around the country. Um, so fortunately, where we're based, uh, Hydroplane, which is in Los Angeles, we actually have hydrogen fuel cell cars we have hydrogen fuel cell we have hydrogen fueling stations all over the place where i live in los angeles so the idea of tapping into that delivery network of hydrogen and bringing it to a few key airfields is um actually not that onerous i think it's something that we will assist and work with local governments in southern california to make that happen so
0: I'll give you the, so I'm driving a Toyota mirror which is hydrogen power I'm going to the shell station Santa Monica to refuel it with hydrogen the the, the the hydrogen truck comes puts it in the ground could that same delivery truck then go to the airfield and, and put it in a storage container there to refuel the aircraft or is that does that have to be made or blended differently?
1: Absolutely. Um, so you really could just extend the existing delivery networks. And although most people don't know this, hydrogen is a very commonly used gas for a variety of industrial manufacturing um, and chemistry laboratory applications. So trucks are always going around delivering gases to people. Um, so the goal here, of course, is to make sure that the hydrogen is produced uh, via green electrolysis. And right now, when I go and fuel my hydrogen fuel cell car in Los Angeles, where I live in the Valley, um, when I check online at the fueling station, it's actually 100% green hydrogen. So being able to tap into that network, which already delivers the hydrogen in liquid form by then going to the airport and um, fueling a doer, which is located at the airport, is really just an issue of, you know, the capital expenditure to install that liquid hydrogen doer at the airport in agreement with local governments uh, that that's an important step forward in decarbonizing aviation. But it definitely does require uh, the support of industry as well as local governments, as well as, of course, you know, startups like ourselves to make this happen.
0: From a scalable simple layman terms it's you can just add on another stop to the delivery route it's like the gentleman that goes around and delivers the coca-cola you just add on another stop the coca-cola this convenience store and this convenience store is the same coca-cola that's a very scalable solution so thank you for shining light on that there's uh the bill that uh, just passed the senate for to bring the minerals for a, a battery electric vehicles to be made in america refined in america but yet we don't have the capacity and you bring up green hydrogen Can we make green hydrogen in the United States and are are we currently making green hydrogen in the United States today?
1: We are currently making green hydrogen in the United States today. And the beautiful thing about green hydrogen is that we can produce our own fuel for vehicles on the ground as well as vehicles on the air. It actually is the best, most elegant way to get around dependence on foreign oil. And it couples really nicely to local electricity production. So in Southern California, we've got wind farms, we have solar farms, that electricity and the excess electricity, which is almost always generated from those um, installations can go directly to an electrolyzer to create green hydrogen. Which can then go to um, provide fueling for ground-based vehicles as well as aircraft. Uh, so what this means is that ultimately, just like a battery-powered car, the fueling of your aircraft will now be driven by the price of electricity, which is incredibly low as compared to the price of gasoline when looked at, you know, per kilowatt hour. The bottom line is
0: what I'm gathering from this conversation: hydrogen is extremely scalable, with multiple use cases. Is that a fair statement?
1: It is. um, And it also, of course, has the benefit of when it reacts through the fuel cell and even in the combustion process, the only output is liquid water. So it truly is decarbonized.
0: Staying on the green hydrogen, now I'm curious, can you make, is it possible to have a a purity hydrogen that's a green hydrogen? Is that is that possible?
1: Yeah, so when you talk about purity level, I mean, if you take water, which is H2O, and you split it up by electrolysis, you automatically get pure hydrogen, right? So by definition, the hydrogen is pure. Now it just comes to the cleanliness of the feed system, you know, upstream and downstream of that process. But once again, those things are already solved from an infrastructure perspective for the automotive application. So you're already tapping into an existing technology. In terms of ensuring the purity level which is required because it's already done for cars you've laid out a lot of
0: benefits of hydrogen you probably have some individuals on the spot that are listening say i don't really know well now i'm interested in hydrogen because it's it's scalable and it's readily available putting that together i'd love to know is this why you decided to develop a hydrogen fuel cell power plant
1: Well, so I will say I do live in California, so it is readily available here in California. It probably isn't in the rest of the country, but I think there's a lot of movement afoot to get more of that infrastructure and going across the Sun Belt where you already have lots of excess green electricity. But the reason why I created um, the company Hydroplane is I actually spent about two years in the battery-powered aircraft space, meaning lithium-ion batteries. And those aircraft can only go really short ranges because batteries are so heavy. So the reason why I started Hydroplane is I wanted to provide... A meaningful energy storage mechanism to provide the endurance and range which is required for the overwhelming majority of aviation use cases, specifically, you know, governmental use cases as well as regional travel.
0: How much did the influence of, of being based in Southern California and having, let's call, abundant access to hydrogen where other parts of the United States do not have abundant access to hydrogen play in that decision?
1: Well, it's obviously my home base and where I am. Um, but I think in California, it does have the advantage of uh, you know, lots of investments in, in, in tech sector, lots of network of people who like to work in small businesses. But I think probably it makes sense to have a hydrogen company based here because of access to that if you're trying to go operational. But if you were just developing the technology in a laboratory environment, you could conceivably do it anywhere and then you would just get hydrogen deliveries from you know the people like Air Products or Air Liquide or Air Gas.
0: Let's end the operational theme here. We touched on the regional aircraft opportunities, but LA is home to one of the largest, most busiest airports in the world, LAX. Are, are there opportunities for long-haul international airlines to use this, let's say, using LAX as a test base because you have access to the hydrogen, you have all the major international um, airlines that are flying in there, and you also have a, a population that is open and more willing to embrace green technologies than, than other populations?
1: So the technology that we're developing is called a low-temperature PEM fuel cell, PEM standing for a polymer electrolyte membrane. And so it does have limitations in terms of the maximum operational temperature it can have associated with it. We can take a step back and take a look at how a low-temperature PEM fuel cell actually works. So you have hydrogen gas, which is on board your vehicle um, in a gaseous state, which is put into the fuel cell. That hydrogen gas is then split up into hydrogen ions using a catalyst. Those hydrogen ions then pass through this electrolyte membrane. which kind of looks like a piece of saran wrap, the electrons that are released in that disassociation process are the electricity, which is the electricity output for the fuel cell. On the other side of the fuel cell, you are taking an air. Uh, part of the air obviously is oxygen. That oxygen is also split up using a catalyst. And those oxygen ions then recombine with the hydrogen ions to form water on the output, which is the exhaust. What this means, though, is that a hydrogen fuel cell is kind of like a hydrogen ion battery, and it's also an air-breathing system. So as you go up in altitude, you have to compress the air, kind of like a turbocharger, to give you enough oxygen to be able to complete that reaction. As a result, you can only fly to a certain altitude before you end up needing far too much power with an electric air compressor to be able to get you um, to the performance levels that you need. So I would say right now for our technology, we're looking at a service ceiling of about 25,000 feet coupled to a turboprop aircraft. Um, and this isn't really applicable technology for a jet aircraft, which obviously flies at higher altitudes and uses a jet engine. I know that was uh, a lot. You mentioned,
0: <laughs> no, that was, no, that was good. You mentioned earlier max temperature. You're based in Southern California. So I'm going to just ask you two simple things here. So you look at um, LAX or or Van Nuys, for that matter, to Palm Springs and and Van Nuys to Vegas. If you're running there in the summer, it can get over 110, 120 degrees. Or for that matter, you take a jaunt out to uh, Phoenix, which I believe holds the recognized states for the hottest tarmac at any time. Does that affect where you can operate?
1: So the way that you handle the thermal challenge is that you have an onboard thermal management system. And in this case, we have a liquid cooling system. So you do have a maximum operational temperature, but it's still the same maximum operational temperature that you would have for any other aircraft. So I think that's roughly 120 degrees Fahrenheit is kind of the peak that they put on the exterior one. But that being said, as a person who flies small aircraft all the time, there are certain days where you will not fly because it's too hot because you simply wouldn't have enough runway to be able to take off, or you wouldn't have enough runway to be able to land if you're coming in at a faster speed. Um, So there are days when, you know, in general, there are aircraft that just don't fly. But ultimately, we are limited in the same way by temperature as a traditional internal combustion engine system would be.
0: So if the internal combustion engine system can go from Van Nuys to, to Phoenix, no problem. Your system can go Van Nuys to Phoenix, no problem, essentially? Yes. Wow. Well, that's another advantage look into the future how do you see hydrogen fuel cell technology evolving over the next decade it seems like it's it's come a long way but it's still got a long way to go
1: Yes, yeah, so this is something that we're very interested in, is the evolutionary path to get us to larger and larger platforms and to get us to higher and higher altitudes. And so we're working on a low temperature PEM technology now, which is a operational temperature restriction of the membrane. So what we're going to work on next is a high temperature PEM, which is a membrane which can operate at nominally higher temperatures, which would then impose less requirements on the electric air compressor, less requirements on the thermal management system. But because that membrane technology is at a lower technology readiness level, we want to focus on getting our first product to market with a low temperature PEM, and then maybe a third product to market, which utilizes a high temperature PEM.
0: So you're working on bringing your products to market. And I want to point out and congratulate you, you secured two Air Force contracts for the development of hydrogen fuel cell power plant for aviation and mobile energy storage. Congratulations. How did you do it?
1: Thank you. And um, so I knew that there was a tremendous interest in electric propulsion for vertical lift applications within the Department of Defense. And the big challenge with anybody who's trying to fly off batteries is range limitation. And almost always, for any aviation use case, you want to have good range several hours. So I knew that this was a good way to enable current platforms that are being electrified to have better range, whether that's a cargo drone, um, you know, something which is a surveillance, you know, a traditional rotorcraft application, um, even EVTOL systems, which are used for, you know, governmental scenarios as well as urban air mobility. Um, So this was a way to address that and to come in with a design that addressed the specific needs of the aviation power profile and the specific needs of durability, which is obviously and reliability, which is obviously even more important for the aviation use case.
0: Do you see a use case for military use for the technology that you're developing?
1: So there are a range of, um, you know, humanitarian aid, disaster relief, medevac use cases that benefit from vertical lift applications, that benefit from short takeoff and landing, that are able to go into places where you only have dirt runways, right, where you only have, you know, grass runways. So these sorts of platforms um, are definitely a good fit for those use cases, which can be military or governmental.
0: The humanitarian, that's a really fascinating one. I never thought of that. That's a well, well done on that. Is there an abundance where you can refuel in some of these areas that needs the humanitarian aid does they have hydrogen to refuel there
1: so this is something that i actually did think about specifically because one of the things we'd love to be able to do is to support humanitarian aid disaster relief missions around the world and so what you do there is you make sure you have sufficient range on the aircraft to give you enough range that you can fly to your point of drop off and then fly back so with a thousand kilometer range for example in our first implementation um, you know we can go a 500 kilometer radius and fly back and not have to refuel on the other side
0: it'll have a really positive impact of those individuals that need the aid. I, I was in Puerto Rico a while back, and I spoke to individuals that went through the hurricane, and they lost all, all their power. And it was really fascinating, and I said, it must have been the worst time of your life. He said, no, it was the best time of our life. And I said, why did you say that? He said, because none of my children had devices. We had to sit there as a family and play board games and interact with each other. He goes, it was better than COVID because everybody was on their devices in different parts of the house. And he said, it actually brought them together but the thing he talked about was they couldn't get the water and they couldn't get the supplies and they had to ration so that was the hard part for being together as a family was the great part and then if you're what you're developing then you can fly into puerto rico give help them with the water and the supplies that they need and you're doing good for society as they bond as a family
1: Absolutely. And I think that it's important that when you create a product that it helps as many people as possible um, and that it taps into as many markets as possible. And in the case of aviation, um, as many use cases as possible. And on, at the end of the day, it comes down to what are the engineering requirements for those use cases. And then we make sure we have a system which is compatible with them.
0: You have the engineering. You clearly got the engineering chops. And then on the other side of the engineering, you have the business side of it. When you look to eventually commercialize your technology what is the target market for your technology? Is it going to be regional aircraft operators? Will be military, humanitarian? Who will be the, the target market for you?
1: So it depends upon the power plant uh, size. And so for our first product at 200 kilowatts, it would be general aviation, flight training, urban air mobility, vertical lift, uh, high-value cargo, as well as medevac, um, humanitarian aid, disaster relief. And I, should, I shouldn't I should forget this one, actually, because I just came back from Oshkosh, um, is the experimental aircraft community. So they actually can be the first community that we can service because they have a different process for how you get it into those platforms. And as many different uh, new technologies are demonstrated in the experimental aircraft community first, and then they make their way over to the uh, um, STC community.
0: I have a friend that's a pilot, went to Oshkosh, he took a picture out and showed me the landing with all the planes there, and he geeked out, I'm going, he's, I'm going to buy a new plane, and he flies in to look at all this new aircraft, and he was there for the entire week, so you have a you have a, an audience there at Oshkosh, and if they're looking to retrofit their plane, do they have to go through a whole FAA recertification process?
1: If it's an experimental aircraft already, no, um, they would have to go through a review with um, an examiner, which basically says that what you've done is safe. Um, but it's different when you're an experimental aircraft versus an aircraft which has an airworthiness certificate associated with it. So our goal as a company is to get a, you know, Air Force certification to get a FAA uh, supplemental type certificate certification. But we could have an earlier product which supports the experimental aircraft community first.
0: You're clearly looking at, at all the potent, potential markets, but not only are you looking at all the potential markets, you're saying, I'm building a company, but you're taking the time to give back. You're a trustee of the, the SAE Foundation. Thank you very much for the time that you dedicate to that, to that wonderful program. And you recently participated in the California State University of Los Angeles LA Launchpad as a mentor. Can you talk about that experience and, and, and what the positivity that you brought those children that day?
1: Oh, absolutely. So I love to do science communication. Obviously, I'm a woman and a woman of color in a field, which is obviously more dominated uh, by men. So I have a personal responsibility and a duty to kind of share myself as an example, as a role model to other young people from underrepresented groups and other young women. And so this Launchpad activity was for young women in the Southern California area to come and learn about fuel cell technology, electric vehicles, um, science careers. And so I came and talked about my career working for the space program and then how I transitioned that into entrepreneurialism. I got lots of fantastic questions from the young women in the audience, um, and I hope I've turned several of them into budding engineers as they make their decisions on where they're going to go after high school. I think it's really important to have hands-on learning experiences for kids so they get interested in the STEM fields, whether that's working in robotics or fuel cell cars. That hands-on activity is really key so that they can understand how they can be an engineer working in the field in future.
0: And how is it, how important is it for the those young ladies or young gentlemen that are interested in new and emerging technologies to to have a mentor that that they can ask questions and, and also learn from.
1: I think it's really important because sometimes if you don't have somebody who looks like you or somebody who you can relate to, you feel like, well, I can't possibly do that because that's just not me. And so I think that's where when you have fields that are, you know, homogenous and then dominated by men versus women, it can be intimidating for people who are not part of those groups. And so that's the reason why I think it's important. You know, I got lucky because my dad was a mechanical engineer. So I always had this example of somebody who, oh, that's what an engineer does. And my dad's so smart. And I want to be like him one day. And I'm also a massive science fiction fan. So I had all of these role models from, you know, different, women, doctors, and engineers on Star Trek that I could emulate, but I think it's really important for young people to make that connection to someone that, yes, I can be like them.
0: You're inspired by, by science fiction and your father. Outside of that, what are the best ways to inspire young children that, w- that want to build a future is it, to say, hi, meet, meet George Jetson. And I got to give a plug. He was born two weeks ago, if you look back in the history of the show. So uh, George is an infant. And so we got a long way to go to the future.
1: That's great. And, and I think one of the ways that's best to inspire people that's really relevant today is realize that you can make a difference, that, you know, there's this existential crisis that is climate change. You as a, a adult professional, when you enter the workforce, can actually do something uh, to make things better, to build the world that you imagine. So I think it's less about materialism, uh, less about even, you know, this is fun, more about how can I make a difference as an individual and that will make you feel fulfilled and it'll allow you to understand your place in the universe. I want to highlight that
0: you can make a difference everybody can make a difference if you if you put your mind in the right place and you roll up your sleeves and you care you can make a difference it could be having a five-minute conversation with a child about engineering or it could be um you know talking to your kids over the dinner table you can make a difference if you take the time to make the difference and you're clearly taking the time and we thank you for being an SAE foundation trustee and putting this conversation into context Anita. need what is the future of sustainable aviation
1: the future of sustainable aviation is electric propulsion um, starting with smaller aircraft going all the way up to twin turboprop aircraft using hydrogen fuel cell technology in my opinion (laughs) <laughs> However, to get all the way up to the larger jet aircraft platforms, we either need tremendous innovation in um, electro uh, turbo machinery, right, electric air compressors, or we need to shift over to hydrogen combustion. So that's not a trade that I've done yet myself. It's something that I'm interested in. And I think companies like Boeing and Airbus are taking a look at hydrogen combustion as a means of you know, mitigating CO2 output. But ultimately, there are a variety of different platforms that service the aviation sector. So we can develop a huge fleet of them, which are electric propulsion based um, at the twin turbo prop. Size, And then we may need to shift over to hydrogen combustion for the larger trans-oceanic platforms. But the majority of it actually can be um, in these regional use cases. And we also have to think about, you know, transportation overall. Maybe we should have more ground-based transport, right? Maybe we should have more maglev trains, more high-speed rail, even the Hyperloop. I worked at the Hyperloop for two years as well as a means of solving the needs to be able to go over long distances at fast speeds.
0: I like that. We need innovation. Yes, we do. We do need innovation and we're going to put our minds to it. We're going to continue to innovate. We're continuing to build a sustainable future and society is clearly moving towards decarbonization and aviation is a very big goal. Everybody's looking towards to decarbonize and as we look to wrap up this insightful conversation. What would you like our listeners to take away with them?
1: So definitely to follow your passions, um, to be curious about everything around you, uh, to realize that you too can start a company if you had a great idea and, and are able to write a good technical proposal and get funding from you know NASA, the Department of Energy, the Department of Defense, and realize that you are the catalyst for change and follow your dreams.
0: Be curious, you can start a company. All it takes is rolling up your sleeves and giving it a go because today is tomorrow, tomorrow is today. The future is hydroplane. Anita, thank you so much for coming on SAE Tomorrow Today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening
0: to SAE Tomorrow Today. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please kindly rate, review, and let us know what topics you'd like for us to explore next. Be sure to join us next week when we're joined by the Senior Vice President and General Manager, Serence. On next week's episode, we'll discuss how the company creates AI-assistant technology for electric, autonomous vehicles that can keep drivers safe, comfortable, and informed. SAE International makes no representations as to the accuracy of the information presented in this podcast. The information and opinions are for general information only. SAE International does not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, product, process, service, or organization presented or mentioned in this podcast.